Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. And I wanted to uh, reflect on the experience of that two-day retreat a little bit more with all of you. Some interesting thoughts and observations came up. And I'll start with reading a little bit uh, from this book, The Faith to Doubt by Stephen Batchelor. Um, if you haven't read this book, it's a really good read. It's a wonderful book. So I'll read a little bit from it. Don had reminded me about this book and um, I had to pull it off the shelf. So let me read a little bit and then we'll discuss. He says, meditation and mystery are inseparable. Just as the mysterious cannot be unraveled through calculation, nor can a meditative attitude be acquired as though it were a technical skill. Heidegger remarked, that which shows itself and at the same time withdraws is the essential trait of the mystery. Meditation occurs whenever our innermost awareness is trained upon the shocking nearness yet elusive distance of what is present. So he talks about uh, the mysterious quality of meditation. The practice of meditation is a process of attrition the mind has a seemingly infinite capacity for chatter. Is that familiar to you? <laughs> that chatter? No. And there is no instant or easy cure for this proliferation of thoughts and emotions. Only the patient continuity of meditation, what the Chinese master Hasu Yun called a long enduring mind can finally wear it down. This process is echoed in Lao Tzu's words, what is of all things most yielding can overwhelm that which is of all things most hard. Water is that which is most yielding, rock that which is most hard. The patient unhurried yet continuous flow of water can wear down even the most resistant and stubborn rock. Meditation is closer to the valleys than the peaks. A meditative attitude is not preoccupied with peak experiences, those exhilarating heights of spiritual experience that leave the valleys and plains far below. Like water, it is content with the places that all men disdain. The rarefied and brilliant atmosphere of the peaks may uplift and inspire us, but we cannot live there long. Living things do not grow on the peaks. They need the fertile soil of the valley. For meditation to be fertile, it needs to stay close to the ground, to follow the humble paths along the valleys, amidst the myriad details of daily life. Like water, it is content with the places that all men disdain. 
very interesting and and it really helped me to reflect back clarify the experience of the two-day retreat yesterday i was at the uh, teacher meeting at insight la and beth asked a very good question to the teachers present and her question was what is the edge of your practice where's your edge I really love that question for inquiry and we went around the room and we all shared a bit and what what I heard most was can I arrive in this moment with full awareness can I be present and accept the moment as it is no control over the next moment we don't know what's going to rise up right but can I be present and have full acceptance and can I fully know and particularly when it's difficult, the difficult emotion, the difficult um, conversation, the difficult experience. There was a theme of that in the room. As I would guess, if we went around the room and asked that question, I would imagine this would be relevant for you as well. So I think the teachers were um, really pointing to the valley of meditation rather than the peaks yesterday. A few of them talked about the peaks, but really where our practice deepens is in that day-to-day -day, uh, sweeping, cleaning, you know, as Jack Kornfield says, uh, after the ecstasy, do the laundry, yeah? So I want to talk about that a little bit in terms of two-day retreats or 10-day retreats or three-month retreats. Uh, some of us are lucky to go on longer retreats. Um, but for us here in Long Beach, a two-day retreat is a long time. It's the first time we did something like that. And I would imagine that for many people sitting for two days, there would be worry and fear about how the mind really chatters and won't sit still. And then there are the things like the hindrances that we talk about with you all the time, the things that get in the way of a still mind. And I experienced all those in the two days they all visited, the friendly visitors visited, as they will. There was doubt for moments, you know. Uh, I think on the second day, should we be continuing? <laughs> right? and that doubt came in. There was a sleepiness on the second day, just a real fatigue setting in from participating two days straight. And that came... And then there were agitated thoughts, a lot of uh, just the mind going through its lists of what it has to worry about and uh, having commentary and wondering about the next moment. There's agitation, things like that happen to you here. Uh, desire, desire for sometimes when you're sitting in long retreat or a long retreat, there's so much desire to hear the sound. <laughs> <laughs> right or I don't know about you you're sitting in meditation and there's so much <clears throat> desire to stretch and get up and stretch but you know you can't because there are people sitting there that you'll disturb I just want to move I just want to move my body or um, desire for lunch or uh, the coffee house down the block these are all the desires that come up and fill the mind. Um, 
all kinds of desires arise in a meditation retreat. I've even had desire for hostess cupcakes in the middle of a meditation <laughs> retreat. <laughs> Seriously. Um, why, I don't know. It's a kind of childhood old desire coming up. I just wanted that snack in the lunchbox from when I was seven. Who knows why, right? Silly things like that. But these things arise, and very often we get snacked by them. We don't like our meditation experience, and we don't want it. We reject it and push it away. And a lot of what we're trying to cultivate here is um, a softening and um, a relaxation an acceptance, loving kindness to whatever state arises because it's the awareness and the knowing of its presence or absence that builds insight that's ultimately more important than the peak that we're all looking for. For me, on my trajectory of I don't know how many years now, more than 30 years of meditation, I definitely crave the peaks and probably sit for peak experiences, although that desire is slowly calming itself. But um, the reason why, in honesty, that I love to go and sit are those moments where there's stillness, when the mind stops chattering, when I can really feel the heart, and there's this unconditional love that's arising so beautifully, um, when there's an expanded feeling, an expanded feeling beyond the body, when the whole room feels one in the world, you know, those beautiful, sweet, rich moments of just the deepness of silence, the beauty of silence, and this aliveness from inside, you know, this beautiful place where there isn't a condition that's creating happiness. Happiness and joy arise out of beingness, out of stillness. It's just there. Those are really sweet moments in meditation. And um, for me, there, there may be peak moments because I don't get to experience that maybe day-to-day -day in a very busy life. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. But it's deeply profound to give a day over to this experience and just sense and feel the sweetness of being without having to do anything or be anything or go anywhere or have to look like I'm someone. This is freedom. It's lovely. It's rich and filling um, and um, a deep beauty that we're born with, that we all have. It's inherent in us. And we are so busy in life and pushing ourselves and trying to maintain our lives, we rarely give time to this inner life, to this inner beauty. You know, we don't polish the mirror, we're so busy. So we don't see our true reflection, our true nature. Right? So we just don't have that time. And so to create two days of refuge, was a true, true joy for me. Um, and to do it in community was a joy. But it requires allowing and loving 
the difficult moments as much as the peaks. If I can be present and patient and calm to those difficult moments in meditation and see the knowing of that just as important as those peak experiences of unconditional love and expansion and a mind that's empty, wow. If I could love that, those difficult moments as much and be present to it, then there wouldn't be so much resistance to sitting or to cultivating the time and space for this inner life. So being with that hard moment, with lots of love, compassion, patience, presence, and knowing it in a very heartfelt way, very, very important to practice. This was demonstrated to me on Saturday afternoon. It was about 4 o'clock, and at that point I was feeling really blissed out you know, very peaky, you know, high bliss was there. Like we were walking and sitting and it was almost the end and the walking felt so sweet and it was just lovely, lovely day. And Rick comes up to me and he says, the sewer line has just exploded. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, sewer water was coming up through the grate and the patio where everybody was walking along with toilet paper, <laughs> right? And, uh, and he says, I think you better look at this. And my first response was, no, I'm busy. <laughs> Isn't that what we do, right? I think you better look at this. No, no. And slowly it sunk in of, oh, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> we can't lead a retreat with sewer water, with toilet paper coming out, and people walking barefoot. You know, it's just like a game. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so the retreat ends, and uh, one must leave their blissful state and come back into the now, right? This next moment, what does it bring? Another problem. And uh, slowly we began to figure out how to handle this. There was, an, there was an answer. There was an emergency number, and there were people to talk to, and we were able to arrange a plumber coming to the site at 6 a.m. the next day before the retreat started again at 9. And then we knew we had to really clean the patio and get it cleared. Seems like there was a, there was a solution to this uh, worst case scenario. And uh, things just happened in good order and we were able to have the retreat the next day with the sewer system cleaned and the patio cleaned and the plumber doing what the plumber needed to do. But what, looking back, what I'm reflecting on, which was um, more important than the blissful peak moment, was when the mind finally settled on, oh, the sewer is overloading. And the story of a problem could not penetrate 
the calm and ease and stillness that was cultivated in the day of sitting and walking. And that was observed. That there was another way to handle the sewer exploding. Right. There was another way to meet it, which was with some degree of stillness, calm, ease, equanimity, and noticing the story as it would come up and some tightness in my chest and some storyline and oh no, and then there was a story of me, I'm letting everybody down, you know, how could this happen, right? What if, what if the plumber, you know, what do I do, you know, all that was coming up, right? But there was enough awareness built up from the retreat experience and some practice there to hold it so gently and lovingly. So this was more important ultimately than the peaks of the retreat, the experience of the blissed out state. The sewer experience became more significant in my practice. Now, if you ask me, which would I prefer? Peak blissed out experiences on retreat or a sewer exploding? <laughs> I would tell you the peak blissed out experience. I would really, I'm going on retreat, that's the one I want, right? There's desire there for something. But that gets in the way of what the wisdom path of our practice. What happens when the sewer explodes? And that we, we need, in perhaps, or a wise intention is to practice for that moment, too because we're told the sewer will surely explode. There will be suffering. There will be stress. There will be difficulty. There will be disappointment. There will be those contracted moments. There will be things we don't want all the time. What is your state when those things happen? Who are you? Right? Where is your practice when the difficulty arrives? So I wish you all peak experiences, bliss and joy, right? Because I'm a bliss junkie. <laughs> In truth, I am. Um, but wisdom is teaching me to let go. Wisdom is teaching me to let go. And wisdom is also teaching me um, to not cling to an identity when I'm blissful and not to cling to an identity when it's difficult and it doesn't go my way, when the sewer explodes. To not have me in there so much and know that this is the flow of life, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that analogy of <laughs> yeah. water. That which is most yielding, rock that which is most hard. So our practice can be like water, creating a groove in the rock. Sometimes the chatter of the mind, the hindrances, our mental patterns, the mind that doesn't stop talking can feel like a rock, like you can't penetrate it, the agitation. but. The practice is like that water that grooves its 
way into these habit patterns of the mind and slowly makes its dent. You know, that's our practice. You wouldn't think of water being so powerful when you think of a rock. But the practice is just like that. It sets its groove and it keeps working on these rock, these habit patterns, and slowly makes its way. So having faith in the practice through the hindrances, through the difficulties, through the habit patterns of the mind that just seem so like they'll never stop, it will never stop, the agitation that we experience, and to have faith that that practice will create the groove, will create something different for us. So taking a moment now, we'll have some dialogue, but I'd like you to close your eyes just for a moment. taking a moment to contemplate this beautiful question that Beth asked yesterday. I'll bring it to our meeting, to our room, our community. What is the edge of your practice? Or where is the edge of your practice? How do you show up for the peaks of practice? the valleys of practice, the sewer points of practice, the difficulties, the hindrances. How can you bring patience and kindness, loving kindness to meet these difficult moments? And just taking a moment or two to explore internally, inquire, using investigation and inquiry, and sensing and feeling into what comes up for you around these questions. We'll break up into some small groups of two or three or four. And if you don't feel like talking today, I have, um, you can journal the question and go off into the waiting area if you want a little quiet. I have some pen and paper. So it isn't a requirement if you're not feeling like talking to others. That's okay too, and you feel like it's more internal. However, having said that, um, mindful speaking and listening is such a beautiful practice. And getting to know your Sangha members is um, a worthy, worthy venture 
spiritual friends are very important to our own awakening, our own process. So you can choose and uh, find a few people and um, explore these questions together for a short period of time. Okay, I think we're back. Um, so I want to amend a couple of things. One is uh, to reformulate what I said about um, not forming an identity around some the difficulty and creating an eye in it. Well, that's an insight that could be here today and gone tomorrow. So I want you to know that even that is fleeting too. I'm not saying I've mastered that at all. <laughs> even insights are impermanent. Um, but it's nice that they visit. Mm -hmm. And hopefully they'll stick around a little longer. And then a few people said, well, what do you mean by edge of your practice? And really, um, that doesn't have to be so defined by me. It could be whatever it means to you. You know, whatever it meant to you and whatever you arrived at was good. But you could say, um, where do you find yourself struggling? Or where do you notice you lose your practice? Or where are you trying to move with your practice, but you're having trouble kind of bringing it there? Um, it could be just what you feel is um, where your awareness is right now. So there's no great answer. But what we would like to do is have some feedback from you to share with the group. So who would like to share? Raise your hands, not all at once. Yeah. Yes. Um, the question, uh, where is the edge? I had like an immediate um, response to that. And what it feels like to me, you know, if I'm walking through life using my practice, the edge is where I enter like foreign territory and I look back and go, Oh, my practice is back there. Oh, <laughs> like, it's where the edge is. It's there. I'm not in it anymore. <laughs> so for me, it's with uh, a lot of beliefs and judgments. So I shared the example. Um, a lot of times people use the example of having patience with other drivers. You know, somebody cutting you off, somebody playing loud music, something, someone doing something that annoys you. And like, I feel like I have cultivated patience for the random noises that do disturb me. Like, oh, whatever, oh, a helicopter going overhead. I'm sure that's something important, like the Coast Guard or whatever. Like, I have all these, I have all this forgiveness and these rationalizations for a lot of disturbing sounds or car behavior. But there's a guy that lives across the street from me. <laughs> I have never met him or talked to him. But I have so many judgments about him. This really noisy Cadillac that he, right? Can you see it in my face? <laughs> my practice is back there, right? About this guy and his car, and he woke me up this morning, and blah, blah, blah. So I have formed beliefs about him. I have judgment for him. And he, it's the same behavior as happens in so many other contexts that I have no beliefs about, no judgment for, but that guy, I just, I'm really, my, my judgments about him feel like really weighty and heavy, and I feel like my practice doesn't come with me to greet that guy and his behavior specifically, and so I have to work on that. That's where the edge is for me. Thank you. So glad we got that on tape. That was good. Go across the street with his loud car.
One more. So I had this uh, boss uh, go off on me a month ago, literally, and uh, um, it was really intense, and I was really angry, and I, I, I had my practice because I shut up. I didn't say a word to her. I just was silent. So that was part of my practice because normally in the, not normally, but like in the past, I might have gone to town verbally, and I didn't. And so then I took some space, and then I wrote a letter to her. And it was professional, but it was very clear, and I told her exactly how I felt and how, you know, you had invited me to have questions and, you know, to come toward you. And, and then when I did, this is what happened, and it's not acceptable. You know, I, I just said I felt disrespected. And um, uh, anyway, so I said that, and, and, uh, and still nothing. So then I had to watch how, oh, I thought I did something from that, you know? And so, um, but for me, it wasn't like, how can I be at peace? Because every time I see her, there's a big elephant in the room for me. And I'm not the type to not talk about the elephant. And yet, I don't want to be a dog, you know, not letting go of a bone either. And so I, I was having to, like, look at that. And, um... So finally, I kind of had a meltdown, a variety of little things. This one woman was doing a variety of things within this big meeting, and she was poking the bear and didn't know it. And all of a sudden, I just like, whew, so I walked out, and not my boss, but this other colleague. And so I just had a big boo-hoo, you know, and um, trying to deal with all this. And so then the next day, a colleague talked to this boss of mine and said, you need to talk to Paula. Uh -huh. And so... I wanted it to come from my boss, but it came through this other way, and I just allowed it. I didn't resist it. So anyway, so I go and I talk to her, and before I went there, I envisioned us like laughing. I envisioned us hugging, and it was so contrary to how I was feeling, you know. But that's what I pretended. And then I saw this bush, and I asked uh, the, the coffee shop if they had some scissors, and I cut off a little limb, and I walk in, and she goes. What's that? I said, it's the closest thing to an olive branch. <laughs> oh, and sweet. she looked at me and she goes, before you say another word, I have to apologize. Oh. And she just was profusely like, sorry. Yeah. It was so awesome. Yeah. And, um, yeah. That's a beautiful example of practice in action. Oh in the relational world, in the interpersonal world. Thank you for sharing that. Thank Beautiful. Got a question? Yes. Uh, where's that tree? Buy <laughs> 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 a Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> See what you can get with your grande or latte? <laughs> Olive branch latte. <laughs> Olive branch latte. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for sharing. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.